It turns out that having a big butt might be good for your health. A paper from the University of Oxford says that uh, people with big butts and thighs, or what uh, they call scientifically, increased gluteofemoral fat mass, uh, have a decreased cardiovascular and metabolic risk. The study found uh, that uh, fat carried in the derriere and the thighs, as opposed to the waist, tends to be more stable and less likely to release the hormonal markers that have been linked to insulin resistance, which can in turn lead to diabetes. How about that? Uh, Also, they say having butt and thigh fat also favors leptin levels, which is a hormone responsible for regulating weight. Now, of course, they are quick to point out that uh, fat distribution is mostly decided by genetics, so you can't really affect it by losing or gaining weight. However, it is definitive proof, scientific proof, that Sir Mix-a-Lot was right all along. Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, just like people sometimes do, dogs can overdo it in the summer heat, and just like in people, it can be dangerous or even fatal. Plus, a new survey finds many teens are understandably stressed after two disrupted school years now, and unsure about what the transition back to normal will really look like. In our community and business spotlight this morning, Blanchard Valley Health System CEO Myron Lewis previews the 32nd annual Julie Cole Charity Golf Classic, an online benefit auction. And in our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, bringing to life the stories of those Americans who led the way to victory in World War II on the beaches of Normandy more than 75 years ago. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, May 27th, 2021. It is cellophane tape day today. (laughs) I suppose if everything else has a a day, then cellophane tape uh, deserves one too. National Grape Popsicle Day. Not just any popsicle day. It's Grape Popsicle Day. Uh, National Gray Day today for brain cancer awareness. So important to point that out. It is Nothing to Fear Day. It is Red Nose Day, campaign with a mission to end child poverty uh, by funding programs that keep children safe, healthy, educated, and empowered. Red Nose Day today. And it is Sunscreen Protection Day. So, uh, reasons to celebrate today. Always a reason to celebrate. I uh, obviously did not win the million dollars in the uh, Vaximilian drawing, the first Vaximilian drawing, because I'm here. (laughs) This morning, had I been a winner, uh, you could pretty much guarantee that I would not be here. Uh, but uh, but it was not me. It was uh, Abigail Begensky of Silverton, Ohio, won the uh, first million-dollar prize, the Vaximilian Lottery. And Joseph Costello of Englewood won the first full-ride college scholarship. So four more drawings... Uh, for each of those, and you do not have to enter again. If you uh, are already entered in the uh, Vaximilian drawing, you don't have to enter again. So so we continue to hope. <clears throat> no, if I were to win, I'd still be here. I mean, you know, but I would just uh, have, a, have a lot less to worry about. You know what I mean? So anyway. Um... Whatever you feel, however you feel about the Vaximilian giveaway, it seems to be working getting people to get vaccinated. They say uh, vaccination rates in the state of Ohio have have gone up by like 45% since they announced the the Vaximilian drawings. So it seems to be working on some level. Like it or or not, agree with it or not. Uh, so this is an interesting story that really speaks to the whole question of um, the the uh, big data and the um, I guess the collection of uh, all of this information. What do big tech companies do with all of this info that uh, they are collecting on us, and is it a good thing or not? Google has now entered into a multi-year deal 
with HCA Healthcare hospital chain to develop healthcare algorithms that will monitor patients, guide medical decisions, and increase efficiency. This is according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. One goal is to have the algorithms send an alert to the doctor uh, when there is a change in a patient's condition uh, that your mobile device is able to pick up on. It's your smartphone, your smartwatch, whatever. There's a change in your health condition. Your doctor would get an alert. Uh, supporters say the intent is to improve the results of patient care and find new treatments. As part of the deal, Google will store data. It'll be Google that is storing the data from the chain's medical devices and information from patient health records. Obviously, critics bring up concerns about patient privacy, but they say identifying information will be removed from patients' records before they are sent to Google and that they will be very careful about privacy. So the question is, do you trust big tech like Google to protect your privacy in the name of better health? Hmm. This gets into that whole gray area of just because we can do something, does that mean we should? And along those same lines, I also saw this story. The crime tracking app, Citizen, it's a crime tracking app, has decided to drop their plans. They are scrapping their plans to have a private security response force that users could call through the app. This is a report from CBS Money Watch. The company launched a pilot program of the service last month in Los Angeles, partnering with a private security firm. And during the trial, only company employees could use the service, which included a company-branded squad car. So you've got this crime-tracking app, and if you are victimized, instead of calling the police, you would call this private security firm through the app. Citizen ended the program on Tuesday and says it is doing away with the idea, with a spokesperson saying this was a small 30-day test that is now complete. We have no plans to launch our own private security force. The uh, representative declined to give a reason, but there had been more than more than a fair amount of criticism. The private security force feature was being tested. It kind of feels like you know, a vigilante sort of thing. The app alerts users to potential safety hazards, emergencies, and criminal activity in their area using cell phone location data, gets the information from police scanners, 911 call dispatchers, and user uploaded information. So, well, again, it is this big, brave new world of technology that is not all, not always all it is cracked up to be. So, and it goes back to that age-old question. Just because we can do something, does that mean we should? There's always that uh, moral and ethical and, of course, legal questions. Here is uh, what we are uh, most concerned about. We always have something new that we have to be worried about. And with summer right around the corner, uh, kicking off the Memorial Day weekend... Um, summer right around the corner, there is a new issue, a shortage of fireworks. That's right, 4th of July, going to be here before you know it. And there apparently is a shortage of fireworks, according to a statement by Brooklyn Fireworks. Uh, earlier this month, the industry is facing a massive product shortage company says that more than 60% of the fireworks ordered by companies in the U.S. for 2021 will not actually arrive this year due to the shortage. The issue is increased shipping costs. Uh, Brooklyn Fireworks says shipping costs have increased by more than 100% over the past year. Many distributors tried to wait until the freight prices were low again, and that created a massive backlog and shortage that the industry has never seen before. 
Other contributing factors, the Suez Canal disruption, remember that, port closures in Canada, the pandemic's temporary shutdown, and new restrictions for production at Chinese fireworks factories. All of this means that fireworks will be more expensive and more scarce since supply is low and demand with everything reopening now is so high. So does that mean no fireworks displays this year? I don't know. Fireworks shortage. And if that wasn't bad enough, there is a shortage of porta potties in Maine. Uh, this is a uh, report that I saw on the Newswire, and it just jumped out at me, and I was shocked, alarmed. Fortunately, this is just in Maine, but how soon before this spreads nationwide? Uh, the company Royal Flush, what a great, what a great name for a Portageon company. Royal Flush of South Portland, Maine, says they currently have a back order of more than 60 porta potties, and this is causing issues. For customers new and old alike, the company says porta potty units are being rented out for longer periods of time because of the pandemic and the factories that make them are running into manufacturing issues. They add that an order of new units was supposed to arrive in mid April, but they are still waiting. And they say if new orders come in too quickly, the problems, uh, well, if the if the new ones that they have ordered come in here in the next few weeks, then the problem should be resolved by late June. But otherwise, again, for your summer gatherings, there may not be porta potties, at least in Maine. But it, it appears that this is an issue again industry wide. So in Maine, they're already seeing issues. It could be something else that we have to uh, worry about. My goodness. Wouldn't you know it? Just as soon as we are able to get back to normal, we have all these shortages, and we may not be able to get back to normal. Anyway, no fireworks, no porta johns. This could be a really sketchy summer. <laughs> there you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories. The most important things you need to know to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, mostly sunny today with a high around 70, partly cloudy tonight, a low of 52. Bob LaRich is selling his LaRich Toyota Subaru dealership. He thanks all their loyal customers over the years. We have families that have bought, you know, 15 to 20 cars from us over those years. The mom and dads have bought several, uh, the kids and now their kids. That's what we see. So it's a really cool deal. And yes, everybody will be seamless because they'll see the familiar faces in here. Bob says the transition to the new owners, Great Lakes Auto Group, will be seamless as the dealership will remain a Toyota Subaru dealership. Bob said it'll be tough to see the rich name coming down, but he thinks the new owners will really take the dealership to the next level. Get more on our website. AAA Ohio is out with its travel expectations for the upcoming holiday weekend. Kimberly Schwinn with AAA Ohio says travel will be up significantly over Memorial Day last year when the pandemic was at its peak. More than 37 million Americans, including 1.7 million Ohioans, are expected to travel 50 miles or more from home. This is an increase of nearly 57% in Ohio from last year. That's still about 14% below 2019, though. She says 95% of Ohioans traveling for the holiday will do so by car. Dave James, I went in news. Families needing help paying school fees may be able to get some assistance from Ohio Means Jobs, Hancock County. The agency is taking applications for its school fees program. Families at or below 150% FPL, federal poverty level, with children in grades K through 12, are potentially eligible for $300 per student per school year to be directly paid to the school for school fees. Get more on the program on our website. The Finley Rotary Club has awarded its 2021 Richard E. Dick Doherty Scholarship. Grant Ekstrom has been selected as the 2021 recipient of the scholarship. Ekstrom will graduate from Finley High School this weekend and plans to attend Ohio State, where he'll pursue a degree in finance economics specializing in actuarial sciences 
and a minor in vocal music. Get more on our website. And get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Well, of course, already we have had several days of 90-degree-plus temperatures, and even though it's going to be a bit cooler over the next few days and into the Memorial Day weekend, it looks like, we know that there is still plenty of hot weather to come this summer. And just like people sometimes, it's pretty easy for our dogs to overdo it in the heat. So with that in mind, Yukonuba veterinarian Dr. Joe Spoo is with us this morning. And what does a heat-related illness look like in our dog? So you and I are very good at cooling down. So we can be active on a hot day. We sweat. We have a lot of body surface area that contributes to that cooling down. Dogs, unfortunately, are very inefficient at cooling down. They basically rely on their respiratory tract, so panting, to be able to get rid of that heat in their body. And so while they're tremendous athletes, they're very inefficient at that part of being an athlete. And so what happens in these hot, humid conditions is that that system becomes even more inefficient and that body temperature, if activity continues, continues to rise and gets to a point of causing illness and and danger to those dogs. And so it progresses through stages. And so with heat-related illness, we have heat stress in the early stages, progressing to heat exhaustion, and then unfortunately can result in heat stroke, which can result in the death of our dogs. So do dogs have a a natural mechanism that tells them when they're overheated? I mean, do they know when they need to take a break, get into the shade, get hydrated, that kind of thing? That's a good question and, and, and really kind of is the crux of this problem. This really is a problem created by you and me because dogs don't have that ability. And so if we ask them to go out and work and play, they're going to go work and play even to the point of killing themselves. And so we have to be aware of that situation to be able to shut it down. If it's too hot, if there's, if there's problems, we need to be aware of it and be the, you know, voice of reason for that dog. There's a rare dog. You'll have a dog that doesn't like to be hot and they'll just quit being active. But the vast majority of dogs are very loyal. And if we ask them to run through a brick wall, yeah. they're going to run through a brick wall. Yeah. So even if they did have some semblance of, of understanding of this, they uh, we're going to override that uh, and they're going to uh, go ahead and, and do what they shouldn't be doing anyway. And even if they realize they need to get hydrated, they rely on us uh, for that hydration. So if there's no water, they can't, they can't drink. So we uh, are often the uh, culprit on this. Are certain breeds of dogs more at risk or more susceptible than others? Yeah, and I would say, you know, under the long set of circumstances, any dog can succumb to this. So even a fit, athletic, heat-tolerant dog is going to have a threshold or certain conditions. You know, in generalities, dogs that are more prone to it are going to be your obese dog, your dog that's not in condition, uh, so that couch potato dog that never really spends much time outside, uh, older dogs. So a dog that maybe was fit and active in its youth as it becomes a geriatric is going to be more prone and susceptible to heat changes. And so being aware that that susceptibility changes over the course of the dog's life. And then as far as specific breeds, any of the breeds that kind of have that smashed face appearance, so your bulldogs, your pugs, your French bulldogs, are going to be highly susceptible. And so those dogs, you know, have that shortened nose. They oftentimes have an elongated soft palate. They have a smaller windpipe, you know, their trachea. And so they have trouble breathing in under normal conditions. Yeah. And so you add heat and humidity to those breeds, and they can get in trouble just looking outside. <laughs> yeah, so uh, they just exacerbates an already inefficient system, as you were talking about earlier. So yeah. how so how would someone recognize the warning signs uh, in their dog? What do we and and what do we do if we spot those warning signs? So the big thing is, is that, you know, with the stages come different warning signs. So early in the process, in, you know, in the heat stress, you're going to have a dog that's trying to move a tremendous amount of air. And so it's not that panting of, hey, I just made a couple of retrieves of the Frisbee or I'm happy to be outside. It is wide open mouth, moving a tremendous amount of air. So it's very, very roaring. And that tongue is going to be hyperextended. So it's going to appear longer than you ever thought your dog's tongue was. They'll flatten that out. And then as part of that open mouth, you know, dry mouth with the panting, they get a thick, ropey saliva. So it's not that drool that, you know, when they're begging for a bite of sandwich, it's a thick, ropey, different character to the saliva as well. 
as we progress into that heat exhaustion, I tell owners that a dog's going to have a help me look to them. So they no longer are enjoying what we're doing and they're looking to you for help. And if you see that, you absolutely need to shut things down and address it. If we miss it, then the dog will progress to stumbling. They're unaware of their surroundings. Mm. Um, from there, as we get into the heat stroke category, the dog can collapse. We can have seizures. As the internal organs are affected, we can have vomit, diarrhea, and then unfortunately, the ultimate issue with this is that dogs can ultimately succumb to this condition. Obviously, we don't want to get to that point. I I have heard it said that if a person is overheating, you need to cool them off uh, like with cool water, but not cold. That cooling a person too quickly can be dangerous. Is that the same with dogs? Yes. The big thing where people will sometimes default to ice and I will use ice in dogs, but I'll use it deep up in their armpits, you know, deep in their groin where there's major blood vessels. To your point, if we kind of generally chill the outside of the dog, what can happen is, is that you can actually have constriction of those external blood vessels and, and we have the opposite problem of what we want. And so what I like to do is to get these dogs wet. It doesn't have to be ice cold water, but then air movement. And so if you're out at the dog park, Get that dog in the car with the air conditioning blowing across that wet dog. If you're at home, get some fans blowing and get that air movement, you know, evaporating that water working to our advantage to try to cool these dogs down. Now, none of this means that we can't take them for a run, for some exercise or take them to the park to chase a ball or fetch the Frisbee. What are some ways to keep them cool while we are exercising our dogs while we are outdoors enjoying the nice weather, playing with the dogs and so on. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is being aware of the situation. And again, as we discussed, we're in control of this. And so, you know, on that day we wake up and there's high heat, high humidity, that's probably not the day to go do those outdoor activities. You know, where people get into trouble is they wake up and it's been in the 90s and now it's 70 and it feels cooler to you. But that humidity is still 85, 95%. That's going to be a situation that is very dangerous to those dogs. And so taking into account both the heat and the humidity. And then the other area is the environment in which you're doing your activity. So let's say we're going on a run on the bike trail. Be conscious of that black pavement. And if the sun is out, that, that that sun can really heat that pavement up to the point where it's infinitely hotter down at your dog's level than it is up where you're walking in that breeze. And so being aware of the situation and not putting your dog into the scenarios where they potentially could suffer from a heat-related illness. And so it really is on your and my shoulders to prevent it. And then the days that it is truly nice, those are the days to really get out there and enjoy your dog to its fullest. Again, some great advice on protecting our pets during the summer season. Veterinarian Dr. Joe Spoo with Yukonuba, you have more information for pet owners at the website, correct? Correct. And, you know, Yukonuba being the originator of these working and performance dog nutrition. They understand that people want to be active and outdoor with their dogs. And so they, they, it's important to make a, you know, increase awareness of exertional HRI. And so you can find that information at the website at yukanuba.com. That's E-U-K-A-N-U-D-A.com forward slash HRI. And there's a plethora of information on this subject. Dr. Spoo, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, you remember yesterday we were talking about how to handle some of the lingering questions that young children have about the pandemic and the ways it has impacted their lives. This morning, I want to explore the impact all of this has had on teenagers. Uh, Jen Youth, a nationally recognized leader in youth health and wellness, has just released the results of a new national survey, The Impact of COVID-19 on Teens, one year later. Alexis Glick is CEO of Gen Youth. And Alexis, aside from the, I guess, natural curiosity of kind of looking back at where we are one year later, you say that there was the belief that this is not just interesting information, but important information, uh, an important uh, study to do right now. Why? 
Well, you know, as you referenced, I mean, look, um, you know, life has been disrupted and particularly it's been disrupted for teens. You know, in our work at Gen Youth, our focus is on creating healthier school communities. And we do that by supporting 40 million kids in our nation's schools every day. What we quickly recognized at the start of COVID was that kids' voices were not being heard. So what we immediately did was we surveyed teens 13 to 18 years old to find out six weeks into the pandemic, you know, what did school shutdowns do to their lives? Mm -hmm. And we found some really staggering data. But importantly, what we said is, we've got to continue to lift their voice and hear their voices. And so we went back a year later to see how they're coping with now two disrupted school years. And frankly, the results were pretty sobering. So what do the results tell you about how America's kids are doing uh, as we head into the conclusion of, as you said, now a a year and a half uh, of disrupted learning? Well, here's the reality. Three out of four teens say that the pandemic has impacted their academic readiness. You know, their confidence is shot. Half of them report that their social and emotional well-being has been compromised. You know, 56% of them say they have little or no control over their own lives. Four in 10 feel they've been isolated from other people. The truth is they have been. Mm -hmm. Um, And sadly, you know, north of a quarter of them are worried about their families you know, financial well-being and, and real, you know, real heartbreaking thing is that 53% of them are concerned that they've lost the happiest and most exciting years of their lives. So what the survey unearthed is this underlying fear that has permeated all areas of teen lives, academic, financial, social. And what that truly means is that we've got a mental and emotional health crisis on our hands um, with our nation's kids. Yeah, uh, whether uh, some of those concerns are real or some of them are more perceived than reality, it really doesn't matter. The point being that uh, there is, uh, in many respects, with many of these teens, uh, we have kind of a crisis uh, on our hands. You also found, and I thought this was kind of interesting from what it says in my notes here, that uh, many of these same teens feel at the same time ill-prepared for the uh, transition back to quote-unquote life as normal post-pandemic. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. You know, if you think about the, the majority of kids worrying about academic readiness, preparedness for them to go into the next school year is of daunting concern for kids um, because they truly feel they have not learned as well. But in particular, you know, 25% of the kids we surveyed are worried about academic scholarships. You know, over 20% of them are worried about gaining admissions into, you know, colleges and vocational schools. 22% of them are worried about getting the job they need and that they want. And so it's a wake-up call, not just for parents, educators, caregivers, family, and friends, but it's also an educator for employers that their employees are dealing with these issues. Um, You know, that their employees' kids are having issues and therefore it's affecting their employees, but also employers who are hiring high school age kids and sure. frankly for colleges and universities who bring these kids in it's a wake-up call for them as well again uh, you know and here again in this case uh, some of those uh, concerns uh, are valid some of them are uh, probably more perception than reality I mean we've heard uh, colleges uh, admissions offices in various colleges and technical schools saying that they understand you know that there are these issues and they're uh, going to adapt uh, as necessary so maybe some of those are perceived but again, perception is reality, especially in the mind of, uh, of teens. If you have teenagers, you know that. So with all of this being said, what can we do to help these teens manage these transitions? Perception is reality. Right. Um, and, 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 and that's, that's the sobering part about this, right? Is that we can, there's a lot of conjecture out there, but what this survey says is it's, it, there's a lot more than conjecture. There is a real crisis. Um, and the crisis is the crisis of what two disrupted school years have done to kids. And so as we sit here today, um, kids are resilient. You know, they, they're the most resilient kids on the planet, maybe other than farmers, frankly, in my opinion. Um, but they need a lot of help. And so what I would say to folks is, you know, number one, um, get kids involved. You know, if you are a family who is dealing with financial hardship, 
how can kids contribute? Because that will boost their self-esteem. You know, particularly teens, they can go out and get a job. Many of the kids that we work with have had to do that. The other thing is, you know, if you're, um, you know, in the workforce, um, I know, you know, at Gen Youth, we bring high school and college age kids into the fold all the time. We did a Zoom the other night uh, with five high school and college age kids to weigh in on a project that we're doing. Their insights were the most powerful insights of any adult on the call. Um, get kids moving. Get them outside. Many student athletes have missed two seasons of sports, um, but it's not just the athletes. Kids need to move. When you move, the hippocampus in your brain lights up. It's the most important part of the brain in terms of learning and socio and emotional well-being. The other thing is, let's not forget our educators, our school nutrition professionals, you know, those lunch ladies, they have not stopped working for a minute. They have been through the ringer. They are our frontline workers, and they're facing their own mental health crisis. We have to make sure that we are providing them the support they need in our school buildings and our school communities. Again, the bottom line is we need to take these concerns seriously that teenagers have, uh, both in looking back at what's happened over the past year, the past couple of school years, and what is going to happen moving forward in the fear of the unknown uh, moving forward. Again, uh, Alexis Glick is CEO of Gen Youth. Uh, we mentioned the survey, uh, the impact of COVID-19 on teens one year later. Where do folks learn more about it? Oh, well, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing this message because I think for everyone listening, um, they know a kid, they're a parent to a kid and, and um, you know, or a friend and um, and they've seen it. So you can go to genyouthnow.org to read our full report, to get more information, more recommended tips. You know, our kids' futures depend on our nation's futures depend on it. And frankly, you know, the ability to rehabilitate this economy. So thank you, thank you for your willingness to share this important message. Now, the Good Mornings Community and Business Spotlight. Joining us in the studio this morning is the new president, CEO of Blanchard Valley Health System, Myron Lewis. Talk about the 32nd annual Julie Cole Charity Golf Classic, which is coming up here very soon, and it'll be your first one. Uh, So, uh, pretty exciting stuff. Coming up, uh, what, Monday, June 7th, right? Absolutely. Monday, June 7th is the Julie Cole um, event. And the night before, we'll be having a silent auction where we will be helping raise funds. And again, this year, it will be a silent auction rather than a live auction. Talk a little bit about the auction itself, uh, because that'll be the first part of this. Yeah, that evening, uh, will be it'll be all live. It'll be virtual. It'll be, be Facebook Live. There'll mm-hmm. be a lot of discussions and conversations going on. But we will have many items, and it will be silent auction. So you bid online, and you can... Um, track your favorite things, either, everything from a trip to Martha's Vineyard mm. um, would be one item. And for example, um, that those type of activities really go well. People yeah. really jump on those. Sure. But I think there's a lot of things for a lot of different people to choose from. And anybody can participate uh, in this uh, just by going online. This would be a Facebook Live event. Is that right? Absolutely. So yeah, you can go online. You can go to Blanchard Valley Health System, um, choose our foundation and pull up the event and you can see how to sign up for the auction. Okay. And then the uh, Golf Classic itself uh, will be at the Finley Country Club then on the 7th. The golf event itself is just a good time to pull people together and to celebrate what we're raising these funds for and little have a little fun out there and also to raise again dollars for the event and we really appreciate all the sponsors and participants because that those dollars that people are investing are really going to programs and services that make a difference in our community and let's talk a little bit about the uh, programs that will benefit from this event yeah there are three of them specifically bridge home health and hospice is a primary one you know, so often that people don't realize that what hospice is and they wait too long to get into hospice. And so we really encourage awareness of hospice and supporting the program because when somebody is at end of life, having support of their family is so critical and hospice plays a critical role in that. If anything, over this last year with COVID, we really learned that we really need to be with each other mm-hmm. and, and console each other. And those that get into hospice earlier, their, them and their families actually do better through that transition period of their lives. So one of the key areas is bridge home and health and hospice in this. Yeah. And then the uh, other uh, program through uh, Blanchard Valley Health System uh, is 
what? It's the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Program. Yeah. And that is a really important program because there are situations where, unfortunately, people are assaulted sexually. And when that happens, there is really a forensic process and collaboration and that works with those individuals to help them through their journey. Mm -hmm. And that program is critical to serve our community. Of course, we'd like not to have to have a program like this. Obviously. But when it's needed, that program plays a vital role in people's lives at a very difficult time. Thank goodness it's there. Yes. uh, Hopefully, we never want to have to use it, but thank goodness it's there uh, should the need uh, ever arise. And uh, then, of course, Julie Cole's uh, Youth Golf uh, Scholarship. Yeah, I mean, Julie Cole has supported this for this program for some time and it's really a great program for more than 150 youth to participate in some education training from one of the best golfers in the country and one of the greatest teachers. Over the years uh, a tremendous amount of funding has been raised. This uh, really becomes not just a really cool event, a neat event, a fun event, but a very important event uh, for all of the reasons that you were just mentioning. Absolutely. We do um, look to raise nearly $200,000 to support these programs and services. And that's, again, between the two activities, the silent auction, which is on Sunday, June 6th in the evening, and then, again, the golf June 7th. So where do folks get more information uh, about it? Just go to Blanchard Valley Health System and check out that and go to the foundation. You'll see it right on the main page, uh, Julie Cole, and um, click that link and check out how to sign up for the silent auction and have fun, participate. Blanchard Valley Health System President and CEO Myron Lewis with us this morning. Mr. Lewis, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Thank you. The Community and Business Spotlight is a promotional advertisement paid for by the featured sponsor. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. This is kind of a story similar to the one that we had yesterday. You remember about the uh, ATM repairman who was uh, who was found to have embezzled nearly a quarter million dollars from the ATM machines that he was servicing. And we talked about how stupid it was because it, wouldn't that be the first person that you would suspect? Uh, well, two men who handled cargo at Los Angeles International Airport are now in custody and accused of stealing more than $224,000 worth of gold. The FBI arrested the men on Tuesday morning after they allegedly stole four gold bars that were being shipped to New York uh, back in April of 2020. Now, why it took them so long to figure this out, I have no idea. Because if these uh, 25 gold bars had been separated from a much larger shipment arriving from Australia, uh, going through New York and uh, on its way to, I'm not sure exactly where, but it was being shipped through New York uh, to, um, or no, I'm sorry, it was uh, being shipped through LAX on its way to New York. So this is at LAX. They uh, uh, arrested these uh, baggage uh, cargo carriers, cargo handlers. Uh, When one of the workers discovered the missing box, he allegedly helped himself to four of the bars. So a box gets separated from the rest of the gold, and when this worker finds it, he decides, hey, I'll take a handful for myself. The gold bars worth $56,000 apiece in all $224,000, a quarter of a million dollars worth of gold. The FBI says that man gave a second suspect, one of his co-workers, one of the bars, and then he gave another to a family member and asked him to exchange it for a car. <laughs> Yeah, that would not be suspicious at all. You uh, walk into a uh, dealership and say, hey, what can I what can I get for this and produce a solid gold bar? The other two gold bars were found buried in his backyard. But again, here again, if these gold bars show up missing on a cargo shipment at LAX, wouldn't the first person that you'd want to question, the first person you would suspect would be the cargo handlers? I mean... Honestly, I don't know why it took him a year to uh, figure it out, but eventually uh, they came up with the the solution. They got their man, and the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, Again, here's another story that uh, relates, uh, what was it, a few days ago we had the uh, story of the big, huge chunk of ice that fell 
uh, through the roof of a home in Florida, I think it was. Well, Ken Millerman says on Tuesday he was in bed at his home in Elk Mound, Wisconsin, when a 12 and a half pound chunk of ice crashed through his roof and into his bedroom. The National Weather Service said the storm clouds in the area at the time were not strong enough to produce hail that size. And the sheriff's office says the origins of the ice chunk are, at this point, unknown. They continue to investigate. Mr. Millerman says he was lucky that the chunk only grazed him. (laughs) That's not the way you want to wake up in the morning. (laughs) That's not the way you want to be awakened. Huge chunk of ice. Is this something we need to worry about? Chunks of ice falling from the sky all of a sudden? I mean, what is going on here? That's two in a week. Imagine this is along the same lines, I guess, in in a way, the Vaximilian drawing. First one of those uh, in Ohio held yesterday and some other states are, you know, giving away money for people who get vaccinated. This is kind of along the same lines. Imagine finding some cold, hard cash when you go to buy your baby diapers. One Southern California couple is making that possible. Crystal Dunahay, a mother of two, posted a video on her Instagram where she was hiding money into boxes of diapers and boxes of formula, infant formula, at uh, local stores in Southern California. She captioned the post saying that she and her husband went to uh, various Target stores in Southern California and hid money in the baby items just as a i guess a nice thing to do they've grabbed some of these boxes at random and stuck money in them the footage shared on the good news movement instagram account and the posts have received over three hundred fifty thousand likes combined I, i would imagine probably will start a mad dash for diapers and infant formula in southern california I don't know how much money they uh, said, but they said it's. Uh, they understand it's tough to raise a kid. Want to help out with a little extra cash? So someone at random going to get some extra money. Kind of cool. Elsewhere in the broken news, this is pretty crazy. You talk about a chunk of ice falling through your your roof. The San Bruno Police Department in California says a cougar broke through a window of a home there in San Bruno uh, in the wee hours of the morning on Tuesday. They believe (laughs) that the cougar made its dramatic entrance because it spotted several large game taxidermy trophy heads mounted on the interior walls of the residence. (laughs) It got a glance, thought there were animals inside, and (laughs) and so the cougar... Uh, broke into the home thinking, lunch! (laughs) The homeowner scared the animal and says it left through the same window. There were no injuries reported. Police department and uh, animal control officers say mountain lions typically are not dangerous to the public and will avoid interactions with humans uh, when they come in contact. They'll generally turn around and run the other way unless unless they're threatened. But uh, still, I'm not sure I want one of them in my home. And uh, if that's all it takes to attract cougars, you might want to think twice about having those animal heads in your house. <laughs> or at least uh, not put them in a room with a bunch of windows. That's good advice there. And finally, in the broken news this morning, uh, sometimes it's not the police cameras and the uh, speed guns that uh, that cause the accidents. Well, sometimes it's not speeding that causes the accidents. Sometimes it's slowing down. Uh, two major accidents in Germany and France recently caused by speed cameras. Uh, police in Ifta, Germany, revealed that a speed camera trap set by police caused an accident when a 41-year-old truck driver, afraid of getting a ticket, slammed on his brakes when he saw officers holding the handheld laser speed cameras. He ultimately lost control of the vehicle, smashed into a guardrail, uh, causing some $7,000 in damage. And the same thing happened in Ostheim, France, when a 45-year-old driver slammed on the brakes of his car 
After spotting a speed camera, the sudden maneuver caused the car to spin out of control and roll over into a field. The driver sustained minor injuries, was uh, transported to the hospital. They say that speed kills, but sometimes it's slowing down that'll get you. In this case, there you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news. Brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. This is the sound of a popular American motorcycle. It's the sound of freedom, the open road, really good times. And this is what it sounds like with a drunk guy in it. How do you like the sound of that? Cops are cracking down on drunk motorcycle riders. If you ride drunk, you will get caught and you will get arrested. Drunk riding. Over the limit, under arrest. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Transportation. And time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. I thought this was kind of interesting. You know that uh, this particular driving maneuver uh, flummoxes a lot of drivers. Do you believe that you are good or bad at parallel parking? Uh, This is a survey, I think uh, it was from USA Today that I saw yesterday. The number of people who say that they believe that they are very good at parallel parking, 28% say they are very good at parallel parking. 36% believe they are somewhat good at parallel parking. I see those numbers. I saw those numbers and I I thought to myself, based on my experience and what I observe, (laughs) that's about 60% or so of drivers who are kidding themselves. (laughs) But that's that's the survey. 15% admit that they are somewhat bad, and 10% will concede that they are very bad at parallel parking. And this was the part that I thought was most interesting uh, in this survey. 4% say they don't know <laughs> whether they're good or bad at parallel parking. Let me tell you something. If you don't know then you are bad at parallel parking. (laughs) If you don't know, you can pretty much figure you're bad. Time for our Throwback Thursday segment this morning with Memorial Day coming up. Today's Throwback Thursday takes us back to 2019 and the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion on the beaches of Normandy that marked the beginning of the end of the reign of Nazi Germany and World War II in Europe. To mark that occasion, author and historian Alex Kershaw released a book in 2019 called The First Wave, The D-Day Warriors Who Led the Way to Victory in World War II. And we spoke to him about the unique perspective that his book gives to the reader about those who were there. Your books are known for telling unique stories from a unique perspective, uh, but but D-Day is such a well-known event. So much has been written about this uh, already. What What is there to add that hasn't already been documented? Well, it's a very good question. I don't think there's a great deal to add apart from developing personal stories and trying to bring out the human drama. So what I tried to do was to say, hey, um, unashamedly, I'm going to celebrate the 10 characters, 10 combat commanders who, who carried out the most difficult missions on D-Day. I'm going to show just what it took, and I'm going to go second by second in some cases and show the level of heroism, the sacrifice, the reality yeah. and brutality of war. I'm going to really unashamedly celebrate the guys who got the job done. They're not superheroes in army fatigues. These are average, ordinary people who did these extraordinary things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of them had never been in combat before. One of them, a guy called John Spaulding, who led the first Americans off Omaha Beach, had never fired a bullet in anger and yet achieved the the almost unimaginable. Um, Took took Americans off the bloodiest beach on D-Day, where over 900 were killed. He did that first, the first American young combat leader to do that. So, yeah, I wanted to show that... um, Ordinary, ordinary civilians can be thrust into situations where they have to wear a uniform and then lead others and mm-hmm. can perform miracles. It's a narrative style, reads like a novel, even though it is nonfiction. But, and sometimes you have to remind yourself that it is not a novel, that it is, in fact, <laughs> uh, uh, history. <clears throat> Who are these D-Day warriors that you profile in this book? 
first American to wade ashore on Utah Beach at 628, Leonard Schroeder, F Company, 4th Infantry Division, John Spaulding, John um, Strezik, uh, the first American to put his boots on the ground in Normandy was a guy called Captain Frank Lilliman from upstate New York. Um, they were all part of this first wave of combat commanders who really faced the highest stakes. They were most likely to die. Um, so therefore the drama becomes even more intense. Not only are they most likely to be killed, but if they get killed, then failure ensues and the mission is, uh, is you know, doesn't work out. Uh, you know, they had to carry out these missions. If we hadn't succeeded, then D-Day wouldn't have, wouldn't have been a success. So high stakes, longest odds, um, pretty, most amount of courage. Pretty incredible stories. How did you get uh, all of this uh, this information? I mean, you talk about the, the research that goes into telling these stories in such great detail. Well, I've been walking the battlefield for over 20 years, and I lead um, battlefield tours for the World War II Museum. I was actually there just a week ago. So a lot of on-the-ground research. Um, I've been lucky enough to have interviewed veterans for over 20 years. I wrote The Bedford Boys back in 2003. Mm-hmm. So um, that was the story of the most decimated unit um, on D-Day. Uh, a lot of kids from the small town of Bedford, Virginia were killed. 19 were killed in the first wave on D-Day. So I've been lucky enough, very privileged to have met a lot of veterans and listened to them. I've been on the beaches themselves with first wave veterans. But I think the biggest challenge was just being able to pick the key characters, pick yeah. the 10 guys that were going to be most fun and most moving to follow, most the way I could get some real depth, who had been interviewed at great length before, or who I could interview at great length, so that yeah. I could have that psychological and emotional depth. And it takes a lot, that, you know, because I want to put you in their minds, I want to put you in their hearts, I want them to have dialogue, I want you to actually to be there. So you do need a lot of research, a lot of material at hand, mm-hmm. to be able to bring those scenes to life, you yeah. know? And uh, it's such a such powerful stories and such a powerful event as we mentioned D Day itself three quarters of a century after the fact. What are your impressions about the significance of that event? Not just in the obvious terms, I mean what it meant uh, strategically uh, with respect to World War II, but with respect to global history overall. Imagine if we'd failed and there was no plan B. So if we had not succeeded on D-Day, then we would not have liberated Western Europe. We would not have gone back. And the likelihood would have been that we would have thrown all our resources and efforts into supporting the Soviets, who there, who began to uh, an unstoppable onslaught um, from the August of 1944 onwards, Operation Bagration, which is actually 10 times the size of D-Day. Yeah. So all of Western Europe would not have been freed. It would have been conquered by... Um, brutal communism, and we would have a very different world today. The fire of freedom, the, the fl- flame of freedom, would not have burned again in Europe, maybe even to this day. In honor of the Memorial Day weekend and the greatest generation, today's Throwback Thursday from May of 2019, our conversation with Alex Kershaw, author of The First Wave, The D-Day Warriors Who Led the Way to Victory in World War II. We have a link up for more information about the book, at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. Today's Throwback Thursday. And that is our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for being with us on the program, of course. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, goodmornings.net. We are always on 24-7 on the World Wide Web. Coming up tomorrow as we finish up the week and head into the big holiday weekend after a hotter-than-normal spring, what does summer have in store? We'll get the outlook for the season's long-term trends the experts at AccuWeather. Until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.